0: All right, we are in the book of Matthew, and we are in chapter 5. So would you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. If you need a Bible, we have some available right outside the door. Will, it's a little crowded, hard to get out of your seat, so someone will bring one to you if you need one. But we are in Matthew chapter 5. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing sermon. Lord, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus went up and he spoke with his disciples, and here we are now. 2,000 years later, Lord, in a sense, sitting at His feet as well, learning from Him. And Lord, we do pray You would use the Word this morning to speak to our hearts. Lord, we pray. Lord, we do want to come and we want to be comforted by the Word. We want to be refreshed by being in Your presence. Lord, we do want to be challenged by the Word as well. And Lord, we know that there's a tendency in our lives to just sort of grow complacent and perhaps even stale. And Lord, our desire is that Lord, that fresh living water would continually be flowing into our hearts and then back out of our hearts into the lives of those that we come in contact with. So bless your word and minister to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said in my prayer, we were continuing this morning in the Sermon of the Mount. We left off in verse uh, 10 uh, of the opening verses of the chapter. And you may recall that the, the Sermon on the Mount begins with what are called the Beatitudes. That's those statements that I think most of our versions say, blessed are the, the meek and the humble and the poor in spirit and the pure of heart, and so on. And I pointed out to you, while blessed is a perfectly acceptable translation, it could be translated, oh how happy. And so we spent some time considering last week this idea of sort of the, the secret of the happy life, and that the happy life is being in... Uh, Harmony with the Lord, essentially. What the Lord wants for you and being in that particular place. And sadly, so often, we, as well as those around us, we run after pleasure, we run after experience, we run after entertainment, we run after prestige or wealth or the accumulation of things. And we go after all of these things and all of these people and all of these experiences. And the end of it all, it brings us to the exact place that Solomon was brought to. You remember the book of Ecclesiastes where it says in the opening chapter, this wealthy man that had everything that he possibly needed, that it says at the end, right around chapter 3 or so, he gets to that place where he finally says, you know what, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And he repeats it again and again and again throughout the book because he went after all these other things and the secret, if you will, to the happy life was not there. And, you know, sadly, the vast majority of people that we come into contact with, and I would suggest every one of us has been there at one point or time and another. The vast majority of our pursuit after happiness leaves us like Solomon, empty, and realizing it was vain, and we find ourselves more desperate than ever. And so we have this sermon that Jesus presents where he said, this is the secret to happiness. And it's found in being in right relationship with him. But the blessed life is found in no other place but in being in a right place with Him. So today we're going to continue now this idea. So even though the phrase, and blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the, even though that doesn't continue through the rest of the sermon, we're still talking about the same thing. And it's this idea of, if you will, the secret of the happy life. And today we have entitled our message, Salt and Light, to pick up on the theme that we see a little bit later down in verses 13 uh, and following. But we need to go back and finish up where we left off. So look at, if you will, verse 10. Verse 10 says, Now blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, As we went through the Beatitudes last week, we essentially looked at the first seven of them. And one of the things that you can notice in each of those statements that are there is really the Beatitudes can be divided up almost into three sections, three categories. And the first category of the Beatitudes, it deals with the condition of our heart. So Jesus is saying, look, as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, what I'm most interested in, what I'm primarily interested in, is the condition of your heart. Many times we think Christianity, what God is most interested in is the things that we're doing and our behaviors and all that stuff. But He's first interested in the condition of our heart. And in verses 3-6, through He talks about the need for the kingdom of the citizen of heaven, or whatever, you get the idea, to be humble. He calls that pure in spirit. He talks about being broken. That's the idea of mourning over our sin. He speaks of meekness. And he talks about a hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are things that are internal. And that's what he begins with in the Sermon on the Mount. Then he moves to, now that God has begun to do a work in your heart, what will be your response to those that are around you? And if you look at verses 7 and 9, he talks about showing mercy. He talks about having pure intentions in our dealings. And he talks about being a person that makes for peace or a peacemaker. Well, today, now, in verses 10 through 12 that I just read, we move into the third category. And so we saw what's going on internally, what's kind of going on externally, what I'm doing now in the lives of others, and now we move to others' response to us. And so in verses 10 through 12, how do others respond to you as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Now, one would think that the response of the world to a kingdom citizen would be very receptive. Wouldn't you think that naturally? I mean, who wouldn't want to have a neighbor or a friend that is humble, meek, and forgiving? That would be the type of friend that we all want because we're going to wrong them at one point in time or another, and so we want a friend that's going to be humble, meek, and forgiving. Who wouldn't be delighted to work with a person that is consistently seeking to avoid drama and instead make for peace? We would love to have people like that that we have to interact with daily. We would delight... To have neighbors that treat us, uh, that we treat fairly and equitably, um, even at expense to themselves. And so you would think that the world would respond wonderfully to the person that is living out these principles of the kingdom citizen. But the reality, notice what Jesus says in verse 10, the reality is just the opposite. And so in verse 10, it says, And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why would you be persecuted for righteousness' sake? Well, Jesus points out to expect it. He says the reason why they're blessed is because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so, rather than receiving the congratulations of the world, because we are living a life that is marked by mercy and meekness and humility and righteousness, Jesus instead promises that the person whose life is marked by those character traits is going to receive persecution or experience persecution. That's quite a Bible promise, isn't it? And, you know, I hear that. I'm like, I don't like that Bible promise. You know, if you, you remember, they used to have Bible promise books or you could have little index cards that you put out on your table and read a Bible promise every single day. I'm confident that this one is not in there, this particular promise, because people would say, no, this is broken. I don't want this, you know. The Apostle Paul, he was writing, he promised the same thing about persecution. He said in 2 Timothy, he said, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I mean, these are promises that I don't think any of us readily embrace or are excited to receive. But for the one that loves the Lord and is seeking to live in conjunction with the ways of the kingdom of God, persecution is to be expected. Now you read that and you're like, well, why is that? Why would a guy, a good guy, good gal, trying to live a good life, be nice to their neighbors, all these sorts of things, why wouldn't that be received? Why wouldn't the world want to receive it? Well, I think there's a couple of possible reasons, and I'm sure there are others as well. I think one reason is this, that the follower of Christ that is seeking to live according to these principles may be perceived to be weak, or they perhaps will be uh, perceived to be unwilling to stand up for themselves, or as a person that can be easily taken advantage of. And so what does the world do? It does. It takes advantage of that particular person and thinks it can get by on them. So perhaps that's one reason why the person seeking to live out according to these principles is going to be taken advantage of or persecuted. The second reason may be simply this, that the godly life that you are seeking to live testifies against the ungodly life those folks are living. And so the fact that you're showing mercy when they would never show mercy, that cuts to their heart. Or the fact that you're living in such a way that would make for peace, even with your so-called enemies, is such the opposite of what they would do that that brings conviction. And then that person is now faced with two options. They can either repent of their hard-heartedness of heart and they can begin to live as, by God's grace, you're trying to live. Or instead, they can persecute you and try and get you to convert to their manner of life. And what Jesus says is you can expect the latter. And so, no matter how much these character traits are esteemed by you and I in this room, we can be certain that the culture around us is not going to value them as or very highly. And at some point, push is going to come to shove, and your honesty is going to rub them wrong. Your humility is going to get a little bit too annoying for those that are around you. you you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness becomes more than they can bear. And so then they turn themselves upon you. And again, Paul wrote, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now Jesus continues in verse 11, and he says, and blessed are you when others revile you and they persecute you and they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So verse 10, Jesus is referring to persecution as a result. Of righteousness sake or because of righteousness sake here now in verse 11 he speaks of a persecution that's related to being associated with his name on my account he talks about I don't think there's a significant difference between whether it's righteousness sake or because you name the name of Christ I don't know if there's necessarily a big difference there I think the key is this expect persecution now when I talk about persecution, for most of us in this room, it's somebody says, I don't like that guy. That's the persecution we experience. Somebody doesn't like us because he's such a goody two-shoes or something like that. Sadly, though, we just saw this past week. Nine people lost their lives. I don't know the full number, but many of those people, because they stood up and he said, are you a Christian or aren't you a Christian? And he said, I'm a Christian. And he shot and he killed them because they're Christians as here in the United States of America. Typically, our persecution is something as simple as somebody won't sit with us, or they'll make fun of us, or they'll laugh at us. But our brothers and sisters around the world, and in this case on the other side of the United States of America, are being killed for what they believe. And that's been happening through the centuries, through the millennia, since the church itself was birthed. And so whether the persecution is like what took place in, uh, what was it, Oregon, or as it's taking place in places like Syria today, or northern Iraq, or North Africa, or Southeast Asia, if it's that kind of a persecution, or it's simply the mocking and the reviling and having all manner of evil spoken against you, as Jesus talks about, Jesus makes it clear in this passage that that is to be expected. And notice what He says, though. Because we would get that and we're like, well, that stinks. That'll just cause me to be miserable, but I guess I'll just go through it. But do you see what he says? He says, blessed are you. Because even in the midst of that persecution, your heart, your life is linked with Jesus, and that's what you were created to be, linked with Jesus. And so there's a blessedness even in that craziness, if you will. Now, let me ask you this. This is sort of the, oh, geez, I knew he was going to ask this question. Do you experience persecution in your life? Is anybody speaking evil of you on account of your relationship with Christ? Now remember this. Each of these Beatitudes, I said last week, they're like a thermometer in our lives. They're indicators of what is already going on. So last week I said, if you notice in your life that there's a lack of humility, that's not an indicator to you that you should try harder to be humble. It's an indicator that it's not there and that something is askew And so you should go back to the Lord and say, Lord, why is that? You said that the citizen of the kingdom of heaven would be poor in spirit, and yet I find in my own heart I'm just struggling with pride all of the time. And then God searches you out and He puts His finger on certain areas and you say, you know what, Lord, you are right. And so if you lack lack humility, your response is not to try to be more humble, but rather to bring that to the Lord and let Him reveal that. And even so, if you notice in your life that there is no opposition to your manner of living, could that be because you're, quote-unquote, doing something wrong? Now, I'm not saying that we need to go out looking for trouble. But Jesus said, is what Jesus said, and what Paul said is what Paul said, that all who desire to live godly for Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I don't think you're necessarily, well, you know what, I'm not really persecuted. Nobody really opposes me. As a matter of fact, most people think I'm a good guy. Pat me on the back when I walk down the street, you know, when I interact with people at work or whatever. And I'm not necessarily, you're living your life wrong. Could it just simply be this? Could it be the reason that there's no opposition to the life that you're living is because you don't interact with unbelievers at all anymore? And I don't know about you, when I first came to the Lord, everybody I knew was an unbeliever, except for the girl that led me to the Lord. But everybody else was an unbeliever. But as time began to go on, I was like, you guys going to go where? I'm not going there, thanks. And I began to kind of pull away from certain relationships. And before long, three, four, five years, all of my friends were Christians. And everybody I interacted with were Christians. And when I went to work, I didn't go down to the lunchroom anymore because I knew that the conversation was going to be such. So I just stayed in my room. And I read a little bit. I prayed, you know, did some extra work, whatever it might be. And soon enough, I'm not really interacting with anybody. And so, The reason why there's no opposition to my walk is because all of my friends are Christians and they all like my walk and they want to walk like I walk and I want to walk like they walk Does that make sense so maybe it's as simple as you need to get out of your Christian bubble and you need to go out and interact with some people and hang out with some other people and have opportunities for them to say I don't like you and you're like great that's fantastic that's what I was looking for maybe it's something like that but maybe and sadly i suspect this for a lot of us and and believe me i'm speaking to myself maybe it's something a little more serious maybe the reason you're not experiencing opposition in the, your life is because of the fact that you name the name of christ because you name the name of christ you're not experiencing the opposition it's because maybe your manner of living gives no indication that you do indeed name the name of christ could that possibly it are you living as a are you living as a kingdom citizen in such a way that people even suspect that you're a Christian or a kingdom citizen. I came across this story. An honest man is being tailgated by a stressed out woman. could be a man. It doesn't have to be another woman. stressed out woman on a busy boulevard. Suddenly the light turns yellow just in front of him. He does the honest thing. He stops at the crosswalk, even though he could have beaten the red light by accelerating through the intersection. The tailgating woman hits the roof and the horn screaming in frustration as she misses her chance to get through the intersection with him. As she is still in mid-ranch, she hears a tap on her window and she looks up into the face of a very serious police officer. The officer orders her to exit her car with her hands up. She takes her to the police station where the woman is searched and fingerprinted, photographed, and placed in a cell. After a couple of hours, a policeman approaches the cell and opens the door. And the woman is escorted back to the booking desk where the arresting officer is waiting with her personal effects. The arresting officer says, I'm very sorry for the mistake, ma'am. You see, I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn and flipping the guy off in front of you and cursing up a blue streak at him. And I noticed the Choose Life license plate holder, the What Would Jesus Do bumper sticker, the Follow Me to Sunday School bumper sticker, and the chrome-plated Christian fish emblem on the trunk. And so naturally, I, must, I assumed you must have stolen the car. <laughs> so the moral of the story is don't put Christian bumper stickers <laughs> on your car. That's the moral. The moral of the story is live in such a way that your deeds and your actions are in harmony with your proclamation of faith. And the very real challenge for many of us is this temptation to live two lives. And so we have our Christian life that we break out on Sunday morning or maybe on Wednesday night or something, and then we have sort of that fleshly life that we break out Monday through Friday at work or on the weekends when we're out with our friends. And if that's the case, no wonder no one is reviling you or persecuting you for the stand that you take because you're not taking a stand. And your life is no different than anyone else's. But mark my words, start taking a stand, and you will begin to hear things like, why are you so judgmental? Why are you such a hypocrite? Why are you so narrow-minded? Start taking a stand, and you'll begin to experience the opposition. Now, I want to make one final point about persecution, and that's this. Make sure you're being persecuted for the right reasons. So, If you're going to experience persecution, make sure that it's for naming the name of Christ and not for some other reason. The Apostle Paul, he wrote this in 1 Peter. He said, let none of you suffer as an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone does suffer as a Christian, Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You see in the passage there, you can be a Christian and suffer abuse not because you're a Christian. In that case, he gives the example of being an evildoer or a meddler in someone's life. Some Christians suffer reviling not because of their faith, but because of their idiosyncrasies. Some are reviled because they constantly feel the need to point out what everyone else is doing wrong. I don't like those people. I don't want to be around those people. And certainly those that aren't led by the Spirit of God don't want to be led around those people as well. Some are reviled Because they feel the need to stand out in such a way so that everyone knows that they are a Christian. And what I mean by that is rather than living a quiet and steady life and letting that speak for itself and then being prepared to speak when people approach or whatever, they feel the need to be in everyone else's face about their faith to the point of being annoying. And they're reviled for that reason. Others are just weird. And they blame it on Jesus. We don't need to be weird. If you're going to be reviled, make sure you're reviled for the right reasons. And notice what Jesus says in verse 12. He continues. He says, Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As a follower of Christ, as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, the blessed life is one that is in harmony with Him. Where His ways become your ways, and thus the responses that he experienced, inevitably they become the ones you're going to experience as well. And notice what he says here. Even though that is the case, it is the cause for great rejoicing. Now, that's an interesting phrase, that statement there, cause for great rejoicing. It could be translated, it's properly translated uh, as leaping for joy. It's a term which means irrepressible, demonstrative gladness that everybody knows the joy that you are experiencing. I remember when my wife and I, I don't know if we were married then, but we, we took a group of youth down to, I think it was, where? Ocean Grove, New Jersey. We, it was a youth thing called Fun in the Sun. And we had this one kid that came on the trip. You know, kids, they all want to go or whatever, and you're like, great. I'm praying for you, buddy, because you need it, you know. So this kid gets off the bus. He didn't know I was around. I heard him make some statement about what he was going to do with all the girls on the beach or whatever. And he turns around, and I'm like, how you doing? And, he, <laughs> and he, So I was like this kid. I can't wait to send you home, you know, whatever. So anyway, a couple of uh, nights go by, and the gospel is being shared, and the kids are being exhorted or whatever. And this kid gets up, and he goes up front, and he gets saved. And he gives his life to Christ. And he comes back to our hotel that particular evening and we're all there. You know, and some of the leaders were downstairs in sort of the, the sitting room of this house that we're in and we're like, what a great night, wasn't that something? And the kid had gone up to his room and he comes back down from his room. Nobody told him anything, nobody said anything about this. He comes down and he says, look, this is the music that I've been listening to and you know, I, I can't imagine it's going to be any good for me. And he says, I want to get rid of it, I want to destroy it right now. And it was awesome because, you know, sometimes we're like, We can force that on people, but God just brought that into this kid's heart. Nobody said a word about it. And so this kid takes all this music that he had and and so on, and so we're like, well, great, let's go. Now, we littered, but I think it's okay. We went to this little lake that is there on the corner, and we took these cassette tapes and threw them out into the middle of the lake, and it was great. Now, (laughs) yeah, I know, it's terrible. I didn't do it. Uh, That was terrible, you know. So anyhow, uh, Then, you know, it was after curfew. It was late at night, but we were with the leader and and all of that. And we went up on the boardwalk, and we did what we ended up calling the victory dance. And the victory dance was you just essentially leap and jump for joy, and you punch your hands in the air, but you can't say a word because it's curfew. And Ocean Grove is no no joke. Those people are serious down there. You know, but we leaped for joy. It was irrepressible, demonstrative, Gladness. Anybody that was observing, either we were drunk or God had done a good work, you know, and that's what they saw. And so, uh, the Jesus says, "You should leap for joy." He says, "You should rejoice and you should be glad, for your reward is great in heaven." And there's probably a few reasons for that. Number one, because notice what it says there: "You are in good company." He says, "Because so too were all of the prophets; they were persecuted." And secondly, he says, because your reward in heaven is great. And as a citizen of heaven, that's what we're talking about here, that's ultimately what should matter to us, isn't it? Is that our reward in the home that we are a citizen of, or the place that we are a citizen of, uh, our reward would be great there. So others might ostracize us and marginalize us because of our faith, and you might not get that job because you're not cutthroat enough for the job. Where people might take advantage, advantage of you because of your propensity to offer forgiveness. Or they might take your possessions. Or they might even take your life, as Jesus says, on account of Him. But what they can't take from you is your reward in heaven. And as He says here, for in heaven great will be the reward for suffering for the name of Christ. And because of that, we can leap for joy with gladness despite the suffering suffering so blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness sake and on account of christ for great is their reward in heaven well that ends the blessed section but as i said the rest of this passage uh, and sermon it goes on for three chapters two more chapters and a half it continues this idea of what the blessed life is like and so he, jesus says this he says in verse 13 he says you are the salt of the earth But if salt salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, he says, a city that is set on a hill which cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and they put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father Who is in heaven. So he begins by declaring two things about the disciple. He says, You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Notice this. He says, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Not you must be, not you should be, or not you have to become these things, but he says that you are. And as the follower of Christ, you either are fulfilling that calling or you're not fulfilling that calling. But that calling is nonetheless yours. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. So let's talk about what that means. Well, first off, when Jesus spoke to his disciples and he said, you are the salt of the earth, they immediately began to think of what salt was used for in that day. And salt in that day, similar in many ways to what it's used for in our days, but salt in that day was a very valuable commodity. In fact, many people were paid for the end of a day's labor in salt. They were given salt. And the expression worth his weight in salt, it comes from those days there. So if a guy is out there, and I'll use me as an example, 185, you know, something like that, and I got 185 pounds of salt, well, then I am a pretty good worker, or it might be. Perhaps a little bit more weight than 185, uh, perhaps there. But the point is this that a good employee worth his weight in salt, a be- the believer is a valuable. Commodity purchased by the very blood of Christ on the cross. So that would be the first thought that jumps into the minds of the listener. A very valuable commodity purchased by the blood of Christ on the cross. Additionally, as a kingdom of, the, of heaven, like salt, the believer has a preserving influence. We don't typically do this very much, but salt can be used to preserve. And in a day, historically, in the days before refrigeration, salt was used to preserve meats decay, And in the same way, believers are to preserve, or we know the end of the Bible, perhaps to sort of slow down the, declaim, the decaying process that this world is rapidly moving toward. And so we have a preserving influence in society. Salt also adds flavor. I had some eggs this morning, and they were dry. And they just weren't that tasty. But I put some salt on there, threw a little pepper on there, and suddenly they tasted Uh, Quite good, actually. And so the presence of believers living as believers are called to live, it should have the effect of making your neighborhood, making your workplace, making your school, making your community, making all of these things a more palatable environment. So your presence should bring peace and honesty and integrity and faithfulness and genuine concern for others into the environment that you're interacting in. So you flavor that environment. And finally, salt has the effect of making people thirsty. You ever gone in the ocean? Swim around for an hour or whatever, and you come out of there and you're just dying uh, for thirst? Salt should have the effect of making people thirsty. Do you have that effect on people? Do people see the life that you live? Do they notice the way that you respond to adversity? Do they observe the way that you treat others? And does that make them thirsty? Well, I can tell you this. People are observing. And they're looking. And they're paying attention. What I can't answer for you is if it makes people thirsty or not. Does your life cause others to say, wow, you know what? There's something about your life that causes me to want a little bit of that. To have a sip of that, so to speak. And again, if you are indeed a believer, you are the salt of the earth. So are you or are you not fulfilling that calling? And if you're not, notice what Jesus says here. He says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? He goes on, he says, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now with our contemporary eyes, we do that, don't we? We take salt, we throw it out on the the road or whatever to make sure... The ice isn't as slippery or whatever. So we might look at that and we might say, well, you know what, I guess ideally it's for a piece of meat or something to flavor the food, but I guess it's not a big deal. At least I'm being used for something. Well, that's not Jesus' intention here. Jesus isn't saying, you know what, hey, make the best of it, at least throw it and melt some ice or whatever. When he talks about having it thrown down and trampled under people's feet, he's not saying, hey, if it loses its savor... At least it can be used to melt some ice. What he's saying is this. It has lost all usefulness. And it's good for nothing but to fill in the gravel of the streets. And so his point in this statement, this is a hard point to hear, but his point is this. I have purchased you at a great price. And I have left you here for a reason. So that you can preserve, so that you can flavor, so that you can make thirsty. That's why I left you here Make sure your life is being used in that way. And if it's not, then like all the other things that we've considered in this sermon, what should our response be? It should be to say, you know what, Lord, my life's not really being used in that way. I'm not offering flavor. I'm not making people thirsty. I'm not drawing people to you. Why is that, Lord? Again, our tendency is, well, I'm going to work harder, and I'm going to do it. But the response that we're supposed to have is say, Lord, why is that? Search out my heart. And again, as the Lord reveals, it's our responsibility to respond to that. So he continues in verse 14, and he says, and you are the light of the world. Now let me relieve a little bit of pressure with that statement. Ultimately, you're not the light of anything. Ultimately, the Scripture is very clear. He is the light of the world. John 8, again, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. In verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 5, he says, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So He is the light of the world. We are simply reflections of that light. But that being said, notice though, Jesus calls each of His followers the light of the world. And that's both a great compliment, but it's also a great responsibility. And so here's Jesus sitting up on this hill, and He's speaking at the very least to Andrew, Peter, James, and John. No doubt some others are there as well these are not the elite religious leaders of the day these are a bunch of gruffy fishermen and i to compare it or whatever you know that reputation that sailors have when they kind of pull into port that's what the reputation of uh, was of of the fishermen and not very well educated kind of a rough bunch you know not the most moral people in the world and here is jesus sitting on a hill and he says to them you gentlemen and that are in front of me, ladies that are in front of me, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. To put it another way, it's as if Jesus is saying, you guys, you are the only hope for the world. When I leave this place and I establish what I'm going to establish, you guys are going to be the only hope for the world. You're my plan to reach this world, he says to these guys. Now, could he have written it in the heavens? Yes, he could have written it in the heavens if he wanted to. And I have a suspicion it would be more effective than my life if he had done that. But for whatever reason, he decided to do it. Can he do it in dreams and in visions? We have examples of that in the scripture. We see the Apostle Paul. You know, I'm sure people were trying to get to Paul or whatever, and it wasn't working. And finally, the Lord just entered in, and through this vision, he revealed himself. We read about it there in, in the, about the eighth or ninth chapter of the book of Acts. And Paul was converted in that particular way. We have a book available at the bookstore, a wonderful resource to encourage your faith. It's about men and women currently in portions of the Middle East that are essentially living in places where it's illegal to convert someone to Christianity. In many of the countries, they'll say it's okay to be a Christian, but you're not allowed to convert to Christianity. So what you're born into, that's what you are. And so really, there's no proselytizing going on at all, no evangelizing going on in those countries. And then certainly in other countries where people are getting their heads chopped off for naming the name of Christ, no evangelism is going on in those particular places. And what does God do? Does he just write those places off? Does he say, oh man, I wish there was something that we could do? No, God begins to reveal himself to folks. Read the book, it'll just blow your, uh, what, socks off or something like that? It'll blow your mind, knock your socks off. Because you see the way that God is entering into people's lives. Amazing testimonies that are taking place there. God can do it that way. But even in that book, Dreams and Visions, what I find interesting, God is giving all of these, many of these dreams to these folks, about 30 different examples. And the dreams that He's given to these folks are not so much dreams of Jesus coming and explaining the gospel to them, they're dreams of a guy like, no, I'm going to point out my buddy Rich. It's a dream of like a guy named Rich. And you're looking and you're like, well, I never saw that guy before. And then the lady ends up that day at the market and there's Rich standing over there. And they like, hey, that's that guy in the green shirt with the beard that I saw in my dream. And then the lady will go up to him and say, this is going to sound weird, but I had a dream about you. Is there something that you should be telling me? And God was doing a work in that guy's heart. And he said, yeah, you know, the Lord told me to come here and that somebody would approach me. And I'm to tell you that Jesus loves you and died for you and gave his life to you. You know, so God is at work. And God can do it. But God so often chooses, and even in these instances, He chooses the normal order of things is to use His sons and His daughters. Is to use us. We are the hope for the world. And that's the reason why the Lord has left us here. Peter said this. He says, In your heart set apart Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you, for the reason for the hope that is in you. You know, the picture that I I picture in my mind, we are sort of like that, that light that is shining in the darkness that in the summertime attracts all the bugs to it. It just stands out and they're drawn to it. And when the people are drawn to us and the opportunities are presented to us, as Peter says, it's our responsibility then to be prepared to share the reason for the hope that we have that is within us. We are the salt and we are the light. Now, a key thought here of this idea of the salt and the light is this, and that is of distinction. Salt is needed because the world is decaying. Light is needed because the world is in darkness. And I think a sad thing has begun to happen in the Christian church and particularly in the American Christian church, and that is this, that we can convert the world by becoming like the world. And so since the world sits at the club and grabs a few beers and socializes well, then perhaps then we should go to the club, grab a few beers, and hopefully win people to Jesus. You know, the world expresses this idea of being tolerant of all sorts of things and prizes, having open hearts and open minds and open doors. And so the thinking is this, perhaps if the church began to do that as well, people would begin to give Jesus a chance and come to know Him and come to love Him. But the reality of that is this, it doesn't work. It doesn't work because you're not bringing Christ to them. You're bringing a watered down version of Christ to them. And we need to be careful that in our effort to win others to Christ, that they don't end up winning us to them. If our Christianity, quote-unquote, is indistinct from the world, then we have missed our purpose altogether. Jesus says you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. He says you are a city, look in verse 14, that is set on a hill. And a few weeks back, I mentioned that in that Galilee region where Jesus is sitting on one of those hills, in that region, that it was a quite populated area. And all around the Sea of Galilee were these villages with populations of ten to 15,000. It's almost all hills around the Sea of Galilee. It almost forms like a bowl. And on those hills are all of these cities there. And at night, as people would light their lanterns or light their candles, those cities would shine bright every single night. If you go out onto the Sea of Galilee, there's no lights out there, no street lights out in the midst of the Sea of Galilee. And we do that when we go on our trips. Sometimes we'll take a night trip out on the Sea of Galilee and we'll just sort of drop anchor and and the boat will sit out there and you just look around you and you see all of the lights of the cities. And essentially that's exactly what the people were looking there. And Jesus makes this statement that a city on a hill... It cannot be hidden. It will naturally do what it's supposed to do shine in the darkness. He gives another example. He says, You should not put a lamp underneath a basket. Does that make any sense? No, you flip the basket over and you put the, the lamp up on top of it. You don't put it underneath a basket and hide its light, but rather you put it on a stand so that it can do what it's supposed to do, and that is give off light. So that's verse 15. Nor do people to light a lamp and put it under a basket a lamp is supposed to give light it's supposed to illuminate and it's supposed to reveal it's okay for us to be purposeful and intentional about letting our light shine in this world you know often we don't want to get ourselves in trouble i think is oftentimes what happens you know what if I say in that conversation, I'm sitting across from someone at lunch, you know, at, at work or whatever I'm thinking about when I was a teacher, you know, and they say something like, I wonder if life has any meaning. And I'm like, man, that's a softball. You know, the, the temptation is to say, yeah, good luck with that. I hope it all works out or whatever. You know, I'll be thinking good thoughts for you. You know, we, we say these things, and maybe in our mind, we're thinking, we're, I'll be praying for you. I hope God reveals himself to you. But that's not what they're hearing. We try to avoid that because we have believed this lie that, you know, that's not what the workplace is for and I can't get into it or whatever it may be. It's okay to be purposeful and intentional about who you are in Christ. And so I'd encourage you, go ahead. You know, you pick up the neighbor's trash. Their trash cans blow over, especially after a time like we just had. Their trash cans blow over and it all comes on your lawn. You can go, or even their lawn. And you can go over to their house and knock on the door and say, you need to clean up your trash off my lawn. Or you can clean up their trash off your lawn and clean up their trash off their lawn and say nothing about it. Amen? You're like, no way. Not doing it. Not doing it. You know, that's a matter of interpretation. And I interpret differently. You can go ahead and love and forgive when you've been wronged. Even when forgiveness is not sought and an apology is not given. You can go and visit those that are imprisoned or in a nursing home confined to their own home And you can do so in the name of Christ. And you should let it be known that the love of Christ is what compels you. Let your light shine in the darkness. Now remember the context of the verses I opened up with. You let your light shine in the darkness, what can you expect? Persecution, right? And in the context of that persecution, the temptation is to avoid being noticed. To hide your light. Jesus exhorts you not to. You can try hiding your light to protect yourself or preserve yourself, but Jesus is reminding us that a light that is hidden under a basket is no longer useful. That a city on a hill cannot, as it says in verse 16, so He says, and so let your light shine before others so that others may see your good works. We don't do our good works so that we can be seen, but we live out our lives in such a way that our good works end up being seen And then he says, and give glory to your Father is in heaven. I said a moment ago, it's okay to be purposeful and intentional about letting your light shine. But what is not okay is this, is doing it in such a way that people are drawn to you and give glory to you. Many people want to do good works so people will know their name. So that they'll win an award or a reward at the end of this thing, an award at the end of this thing. So that people are drawn to them. Hey, you know that family down the street? Such fine people they are. And that's what we're looking for. Or this happens all the time. You know, we want to be a church that is known in our community. And so we do things so that everyone will know Calvary Chapel. Wow, that Calvary Chapel. There's such good people at Calvary Chapel. If that's our goal, we're doing it wrong. And we should stop. If that's our goal. Because notice what he says there. So that they will see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The object of our shining is not that others will see how good we are or how nice we are, but that they might see how good God is and how nice God is. We're not here to draw people to ourselves. We're not here to build up a name for ourselves or for our ministry or for our church. In fact, if people are remembering us more than they do Him, then we're doing it wrong. And I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said this, he said, The object of our shining is not that men may see how good we are, nor even see us at all. What a statement that is. But that they may see grace in us and God in us, and they may cry, what a father these people must have. What a statement. May that be sort of the statement of our lives. You and I, were citizens of heaven, and yet Christ has chosen to leave us here on the earth. As it says in the book of Hebrews, as it says in the book of 1 Peter, we are pilgrims and we are wanderers here upon the earth. Jesus certainly has the ability to take us immediately. We get saved and we're gone. He takes us out of there. Imagine that evangelism. You know, people just, sure, where'd he go? You know, whatever. I don't know who would be evangelizing. <laughs> you yeah, no, I think about it. But anyway, uh, he has the ability to take us immediately into his kingdom. But as the word says, he's chosen to leave us here. So that we can be salt in life, light. He left us here to preserve, to make thirsty, to flavor. And again, he could have taken us immediately, but then, where would the light be in the darkness? You were left here, so that you might be used to reveal people's sins, and to demonstrate that to them that there is one who is willing to forgive and to cleanse and to transform. And again, that they would end up looking at you and say, "Wow, what a father!" these people must have. And so I'll ask the question, let you chew on it as you go. Are you being the saw and the light that Jesus says you are as a follower of his? let the Lord just search out your heart on that. And you know, in if in honesty you conclude at the end of that, you know, not really. Not really. Now some might say, no, not at all. I suspect most of us would probably say, not really. Not really being the salt in the life that, that he's describing in this particular passage. Well, if that's, if that's your conclusion, and that's an honest conclusion, if that's our conclusion, then our response should be to just go to the Lord in prayer and say, You know, Lord, why is it? You know, I'll give you an example of my life. The, like I, I told you earlier, I didn't, I didn't go down to the lunchroom much because I just didn't feel like getting into the conversations and dealing with people. And, and yeah, you know, nice guy that I was, I don't want to deal with people. You know what I mean? <laughs> But in those instances where I was there, and perhaps there was an opportunity to say a word, more often than not I didn't say a word because I had my my eye on my clock. And where I taught, you had twenty-four minutes for lunch, which I think is a violation of some health thing, you know, or whatever. But I had twenty-four minutes for lunch, and I had another like thirteen minutes. And if I had to get in a conversation with you, that would eat up at least six of those minutes. And you're not worth it. That's what the Lord revealed to me was my problem. So, you know, you go to the Lord and you say, Lord, why don't I care about people? Why don't I talk to people? Why don't I witness when the opportunity comes? And the Lord responded, because you're more interested in your six minutes. That's why you don't do it. You see how we revealed? And now I had to do something with that. I can say, well, that's the way it's going to be. Or I could say, you know what, Lord, I I, I don't want that. And I can begin to change that and, and so on. And so forth. So when the Lord reveals, when you petition Him to show you why, you need to respond to that. Amen? Amen. Father, thank You. Lord, I, I just feel like we're going through a personal tutoring session with You. Lord, where You're, you're taking our lives, You're kind of laying it out there in front of You and in front of ourselves. We're sitting at a table, You on one side, our life kind of in a book in front of us, us on the other. And, and You're just putting Your finger on areas. And You're taking us through. Lord, how gracious and merciful of You to do that. Lord, I just love the fact that though You've gone sort of physically into heaven, Lord, You've given us the gift of Your Holy Spirit and You live with us here on the earth. And You minister to us and You draw us and You work in our lives. And so, Father, I pray that You would keep doing a great work. Lord, that no one here, none of us here, would come to that place where we're content. You know what? I've arrived. I'm everything I need to be in Christ but that rather we would just keep seeking You so that You may keep showing, keep revealing, keep opening up our hearts to the change and the transformation that You want to do. Lord, as we've been praying, Lord, give us the courage to respond, Lord, when You put Your finger on an area. Lord, we, we desperately seek, Lord, this blessed life. Lord, not blessed in the sense that the world would define it, but as You define it. Lord, right with you, unhindered in relationship, walking as you would have us to walk. Lord, running uh, after you with all of our hearts. Lord, thank you for the promise of Scripture that we will seek you and we will find you when we search for you with all of our hearts. Father, I just ask that that would be the desire of each of our hearts as we go. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.